I get a little bit tired of Democrats afraid of big ideas. I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. Welcome to Blue Island Red Sea. I am your host, Bob Serrano. Today's guest is Ben Knuckles. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's good to be here, Bob. It's great to have you here. Well, first, why don't you give us your bona fides and give us your bio? Yeah, so uh, I'm a Democratic media consultant. I work for political candidates and issue organizations. I also work for labor unions, some corporations. I produce television, radio, digital advertising. I also help develop political strategies and communications plans for those. Most recently, like last cycle, I was Governor Tony Evers' media consultant. We helped uh, to defeat Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, also worked with a variety of organizations, helped reelect U.S. Senator John Tester from Montana, handful of other members of Congress and Democratic governors. Yeah, before we get into this, uh, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate you being on here. You bring a lot of great um, experience into speaking about what you're going to speak to, but also it's just great to uh, talk to you again. You know, we knew each other a long time ago and and I know that sometimes social media gets a bad rap, you know, in terms of like causing the downfall of society and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but <laughs> but Facebook has allowed us to kind of keep connected. And I am very grateful for that. So we are able to kind of see kind of like how things are going. You'd like it, you'd like a picture of like one of my kids and, and when you won another trophy or award, I like that. And so mainly for this i'm really excited just to be able to talk to my friend ben again so thank you very much for being here yeah no this is great good to catch up yep so i wanted to get into basically two topics on this episode first is a review of thursday's last thursday's debate in houston and then also with your expertise in your in your business i just wanted to kind of talk about general communication strategy and what and how it impacts campaigns and how they use it and to ultimately win. So those are our two big topics that we're going to be tackling today. And before we do that, um, I just want to take care of a little business. So please rate, review, and follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. You may email me with any questions, or you may just email me to want to be on here. That's fine. My email address is aginghipsternetwork at gmail.com, network at gmail.com. Ben, did you have any any social media or websites that people can kind of look into what you're doing at all that you wanted to share? Uh, sure. Yeah, they can uh, go to my website, uh, strother-knuckles.com. All right. So let's launch into reviewing the debate. How important are these debates to a candidate's campaigns? Well, these uh, these presidential debates are a big deal and for a variety of reasons. You've got some candidates that are looking to break out you know, from the pack, and these debates are a very highly visible way to do that uh, and to also show the differences between themselves and, and the other people running the top of the pack and the back of the pack. You know, for a candidate like Vice President Biden, you know, he needs to add to his narrative about being the most electable Democrat against Trump, reinforce his message that he was President Obama's right-hand guy, uh, you know, he needed to really step it up, counterpunch, drive his narrative. And then there's the the other group of Democrats that want to be in the debates, but maybe missed key polling and donor thresholds. You know, the bottom line is if you're not in these debates right now, you're basically invisible. Uh, you look like you're a B-teamer to any voter in these early states and even nationally. Uh, and it further compounds your problem of meeting these donor and, and polling thresholds. And, you know, you really see that's part partly why these debates are influencing campaign behavior like never before. You've probably seen on your, your own Facebook feeds, iPhone videos of candidates asking for a dollar or advertising, you know, in an attempt to move big numbers on television, uh, like Gillibrand did in Iowa before she dropped out or Tom Steyer's campaign, television campaigns in, in the early states. Um, you know, in, there is this push this cycle like never before to meet these thresholds set uh, for the debates by the DNC. And in the last debate, candidates had to reach, I think, 2% in, in a handful of polls to get to get in, as well as having 130,000 uh, unique donors. And that threshold continues to grow. So like the next debate in Ohio, 
candidates are going to need 2%, at least four polls, along with, you know, even more uh, donors uh, with, I think, 400 of them had to be in at least 20 states, something like that. So, you know, they are very critical for the campaigns at this point because they've they've got to be on the stage. And if you're not on the stage with, you know, Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie and Mayor Pete, you know, you're just not looking like you're going to be at the at the top of the pack for a lot of these donor donors or uh, voters to consider. Do you think somebody in a campaign for somebody that did not make the debate, do they feel like they're dead in the water? No, I don't think so. I mean, some of the some of the campaigns that that didn't get in, you know, have a plan to get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, some of the others that you know weren't going to be in already dropped out. Right. Uh, you know, you know, they they saw the writing on the wall for their candidacy and thought it might be uh, they might better serve elsewhere or 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 take a break from it. But they've got to they've got to figure out a way to get into the debate because if you're not in it, like I said, you're pretty much invisible. And so, have you ever uh, prepared for a debate before? I have. And so can you just kind of walk through what that looks just in kind of a big macro level? Yeah. So what's really important when you're preparing for the debate is to figure out what is the message or the headline you want to come out? You know, strategically, what does your candidate need to establish? And you have to, you know, on on the front end, figure that out and everything else funnels through that. So you start building out your narrative and and preparing a consistent theme for your candidates debate it's very important candidates you know for the prep itself you've at this you know presidential level or governor or senate congressional level there'll be an entire process put in place with top advisors and it generally involves understanding the format of the debate uh, developing probable questions from moderators. You know, you got to develop answers to those questions, uh, examining what your debate opponents uh, will likely say, how you can respond to that or take advantage of that. And, and that's typically done by looking at what the opponents have been saying, but also strategy for punching, counterpunching, developing potential viral moments, practicing in mock debates is a very big thing. Uh, you know, and looking at everything from, Nonverbal cues from your candidate or others to, you know, even talking about small things like how do you address your opponent? Uh, do you call them <laughs> Governor Walker? Do you call him Scott? Do you call him Mr. Walker? You know, there's all those sorts of little things uh, that that you have to go through, and and you know, through all of that, the narrative and the strategy is uh, of your debate, as as I had noted, sort of establishing that theme, what you need to get out of it, what's the headline. That's woven through every aspect. And oftentimes that may get lost in debate prep. And when I'm working with a candidate, something that I'll, I'll really stress is to look at the three or four things that we know are absolutely critical and of great strategic importance and have those down pat and don't get lost in a binder full of 10,000 policy stances. You know, Ron Klain, I will say, is, is one of the best, if not the best debate prep coaches. You know, he, he always makes... Uh, a, a very important point that candidates who look like they're having fun on the stage are usually the winners. More Americans, including those here in Texas and, and in Iowa, follow your diet. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, I want to say no. I, I, actually, I want to translate that into Spanish. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so he always encourages uh, his candidates to have fun. But, uh, you know, he, he is a fantastic guide for a lot of that stuff. Uh, but, you know, thinking through, you know, debates now, they're not just the candidates on stage. They start well before debate day. Uh, these candidates are setting expectations. They're threading the narrative that's going to be, you know, spoken at the debate and really pushed at the debate. You know, they're pushing out messages before, during the debate, especially after the debate in the spin rooms and on social media. So the, the a, a debate night, per se, is, you know weeks in the making and, and the, the prep in terms of the pre, during and post game is all mapped out. And it's all laid out again uh, for each candidate to figure out strategically what they need out of that debate. Is it a specific point? Is it a specific headline? Do they want to you know, go hard at a particular issue? You know, that's all got to be figured out beforehand and then woven throughout the entire communications process for the candidate and the team. So is it possible that with how social media and all of our media kind of functions this nowadays that you can be spending kind of months prepping just to get a 30 second viral clip 
<laughs> uh, I wouldn't say months. I mean, some, you right. know, some of the some are just like spontaneous. Uh, yeah. you, you know, um, others, you know, are done with you know more produced videos. You know, but uh, you know, there's a lot of prep work that goes into it. I, I definitely wouldn't say a month. Uh, yeah. You're doing it wrong if it's taking you a month to do to do the prep. But uh, you know, in some in some cases, you know, it's an ongoing prep, an ongoing you know sort of uh, cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time candidates have, you know, uh, depending on you know, the, the, the importance of the debate or, or the, how many debates they're going to be, you know, will somewhat dictate how much of the schedule is going to be driven by that. But, uh, you know, some, some candidates don't like preparing much at all and you have to kind of force them into it. Some, uh, want to overprepare, uh, and that's, mm generally where where the candidates fall is is one of those one of those two i haven't had too many that uh know just the right amount of debate prep you know just immediately it's yes it's kind of like it reminds me of that famous debate back i think it was in 60 or something between kennedy and nixon where it was like if you just looked at it, it was the whole thing of when you looked at it on tv nixon was sweating profusely and everyone's like oh man i don't know about him so it's kind of the same thing, right? Where you don't want this person to be almost, you want him to be kind of on, laid on his feet. You want him to kind of improv a little bit. And I, I get what you're saying about just having fun. It's like, that's it's confidence, right? Is it, isn't that what you're trying to get the candidate to exude? Yeah, that and, and authenticity. And, and there were some great moments with a lot of the candidates uh, in this last debate where they came out and really sort of, allowed themselves to let their guard down and just, you know, tell some, tell some personal tidbits. Great. Well, well, let's get into that then. So your overall impressions, what are they? Well, overall, I think it was the best of the three debates. It gave us a great look at how Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, Biden, Bernie, how they'd all interact on the stage together, which was not something that we had seen uh, previous to this. Uh, and another thing that we didn't really see before this, which is a major issue in the Democratic Party, is health care. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time you really saw, you know, the quote unquote moderates, uh, which, you know, I, I have a hard time saying some of these guys are moderates. Or some of these people are moderates. But uh, the first time the moderates on the stage sort of struck back against the, you know, the quote unquote uh, progressives. And there was you know Biden early on challenging you know, what's it going to cost on the Medicare for all plan. And, and that was a very effective pushback that had not been litigated, you know, publicly in, in this sort of form until, until tonight. So that was, uh, it was interesting to see. My plan for health care costs a lot of money. It costs $740 billion. It doesn't cost $30 trillion. How are we going to pay for it? Do you have, say, like three takeaways from this debate? I don't know if I've got three exactly, Bob, but uh... that's okay. Like uh, <laughs> five or six are fine as well. Like I don't want to do like the winners losers thing. That's overdone. Like, yeah. but just remember, I'm Johnny Lunchpail. You know, I was probably watching Big Brother while uh, the debate was going on. So, like three things or whatever, like that well, think, freeze yeah. my brain. Well, I think the the big the biggest thing is that anybody on the stage was was infinitely better than Donald Trump. And would do a much better job as president. I mean, the differences between the Democrats on the stage are minuscule in comparison to the differences between the Democrats and Donald Trump and the Republicans. There's there's one for you, a big takeaway. Two, the healthcare divide. I thought a great moment was from Kamala Harris. She kept the focus on Donald Trump throughout the debate. Uh, and more Dems, I think, need to do this. Uh, that's how... Democrats won elections in 2018 was talking about Donald Trump's plan to end the Affordable Care Act, eliminate pre-existing condition coverage. You know, that's a very important message. A recent polling showed that 71 percent of Americans in battleground states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Florida and Texas thought that that was a major concern to them, uh, that Trump's plan would end the Affordable Care Act and allow insurance companies to deny individuals with pre-existing conditions. So, you know, the fact that Kamala Harris was one of the few candidates that really kept the pressure on him. I thought it was very important. You know, when you look at it, how some of them contrast against each other. I noted this at the you know last question. You know, Biden 
really snapped at, at Bernie and Elizabeth Warren about the cost of the plan. How are you going to pay for that? I thought that was an effective attack that had not been utilized in the first two debates. And we're starting to see a divide on this issue. I think it's going to go you know, even further. And then uh, you know, three, I would say, big takeaway is that the, the Democrats that didn't make it on the stage you know, were really falling behind. They're, they were the invisible ones. It was the Michael Bennett's, the Bill de Blasio's, the Tim Ryan's. Governor Bol- Steve Bullock, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, you know, if you're not on the show, uh, on the stage, you're not, you're not in the show. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and each debate is going to make it harder to, to get in, you know, other uh, takeaway. I'm going to four here, Bob. Hope Uh-oh. that's all right. Uh, Julian Castro. Oh man. Clearly didn't learn the lessons from Kamala Harris attacks on Biden in the second debate. Uh, he decided that he's going to go after Biden. He's way too aggressive, came across very poorly, went after uh, the vice president on his age and his memory, just played very badly. I think he's been dealing with that in the fallout in the in the following days. And it was especially bad if you consider sort of the aging population of caucus attendees in some of these early states like, like Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just not good. The other, the other interesting uh, moment was with Andrew Yang. You know, if Yang's goal was to elevate his profile enough to be able to get a meeting with pretty much any investor in the country, I think he's met his goal. Done, right? Uh, if he's if his goal is to be president, I think going the gimmicky route was not a good a good pathway for him. And I just I don't believe voters in general are going to want a gimmicky president. And at the top of the debate, he offered you know, to give away $120,000 to a variety of people to under underline his uh, universal basic income proposal. But it, mm-hmm. it you know, just reeked of desperation and sort of really overshadowed this really powerful immigration story that he has of his father, which was very important, very touching. You know, his father grew up on a peanut farm in Asia. Now his son's running for president. I mean, that's essentially the story that Barack Obama told, you know, anything is possible in this country. You can come from any background and you can get elected. Uh, and Yang was able to get that in late, uh, but his gimmick completely overshadowed that moment that I think really could have connected with voters. And, you know, we talked earlier about strategy behind a debate. You know, Yang has been consistently out polling and out fundraising the expectations of him. You know, who is this guy? Where did he come from? But really what he needed to, to, to do on this national stage, I think, was to show that he belonged there, show that he could be a serious candidate. And I think that gimmick uh, really, really set him back. So it's kind of a miscalculation that, that started off with just like, who wants the money like the Oprah like uh, <laughs> opener? <laughs> you get a universal basic income. <laughs> yeah. You get a universal basic income. Yeah, I think it was just a strategic misstep. I think yeah. there may there's clearly some short-term gain in that in terms of Twitter followers. I know that he raised a ton of money afterwards. I just think from a long-term perspective, if his goal is to be president, I think, you know, underlining and, and really highlighting that he's this gimmicky president, I think he needs to mm-hmm. grow. He needs to grow beyond that because he has some very important things to say. Uh, but it real that that really detracted from what he needed to communicate, in my opinion. Our trade policy in America has been broken for decades. And it has been broken because it works for giant multinational corporations and not for much of anyone else. These are giant corporations that, shoot, if they can save a nickel by moving a job to a foreign country, they'll do it in a heart. What Can you think of like one missed opportunity that jumped out to you? Is it Andrew Yang? Is it something else that kind of came out? Yeah, I mean, in terms of missed opportunities, I think the the big one to me is that Democrats are not doing a good enough job talking directly to working families in organized labor. Now, I will say with an exception, Elizabeth Warren did an excellent job of this. Perhaps I think one of her best moments of the night was talking about trade policy and how it's been broken for decades. Um, she said something, you know, about work. You know, it's working for corporations, but not everybody else. And she talked about helping American workers through trade packs and helping to build a stronger economy. And it's not just a smart strategy for Warren for a general election matchup, but she uh, needs to reach those working class voters in the primary to, to break them away from candidates like Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the National Labor Unions uh, did some polling, uh, you know, this year and, and their members 
really didn't respond much at all to Trump's behavior on broader thematics, uh, that he was like tearing the country apart and you know, that sort of thing. But what they responded to, what really moved him was something as simple as the fact that Trump uh, had ended their deduction on their work equipment. You know, it's personal to them. Dems need oh, yeah. to do, I think, a far better job of connecting with voters at their level and specifically talking to working you know, working families and labor unions talking about how important those are. I mean, and that's, you know, Democrats had a lot of success winning the suburban vote near the big cities in 2018. You know, in places like Wisconsin, uh, we beat Scott Walker in part by not just doing better in the urban areas and the suburbs, but holding the margins in in the suburbs of mid-sized cities uh, and the exurbs. You know, and there's this debate going on in the party about turning out the urban vote, versus appealing to more rural voters. And and I just, it's not that simple. It's not an either or, it's an and both. Uh, and to win, Democrats have to have a ticket to connect with voters to avoid completely getting blown out in these ex-urban and rural areas uh, and doing well in the urban and suburban areas because Democrats simply can't make up for big losses in the rural areas by winning you know the suburbs just in the big cities. They have to perform better in the suburbs or mid-sized cities and hold the margins in the ex-urban areas. And talking directly to working class voters is key to that. And so big missed opportunity, I think, Democrats not focusing in on uh, working families and, and what their plans are going to do to help working families and organized labor. Governor, at a certain point when it came to professional setbacks, I had to wonder whether just acknowledging who I was was going to be the ultimate career ending professional setback. <clears throat> I came back from the deployment and realized that you only get to live one life and I was not interested in not knowing what it was like to be in love any longer. So I just came out. I had no idea what kind of professional setback it would be, especially because inconveniently it was an election year in my socially conservative community. And so were there any moments uh, that really wowed you or just one moment? I know that you went through a couple. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think telling a story is always the best way to connect with voters emotionally on an issue or to show your character, show some authenticity. I think that's really important in politics today. Uh, Joe Biden had an incredible moment toward the end of the debate where he talked about his family tragedy. You know, right. if you're not familiar, you know, shortly after. Uh, he's first elected. His his wife was killed. His sons were badly injured, and he and he talked about nearly losing his faith, uh, but finding purpose in what he does every day. And it was a very powerful moment that showed Biden's character and his values, and relating that uh, to to people, and and just sort of the mantra that you know when you get down, knocked down, you got to get back up. It's sort of a is his redemption story essentially. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, Mayor Pete had a, a very powerful story as well about coming out under the don't ask, don't tell uh, policy in the military, you know, shortly after he was getting elected in Indiana, small town, Indiana or whatever. Uh, but a good friend of mine who's a pollster in Michigan, uh, Richard Shuba, had noted that uh, this was the first LGBT elected official to describe in, in really moving terms the risk assessment that every professional LGBT person has to make. I thought that was really, really a great point. You know, Mayor Pete has that it factor uh, that allows people to connect to him and telling a personal story like that um, really, I think, gets people more bought into him uh, mm -hmm. in terms of who he is. But the other moment that I loved, you know, was just a touch of humor. I mean, it wasn't sort of an emotional moment, but you know, I thought Cory Booker had a, a very good debate performance. He added in some humor into the mix. You know, he speaks Spanish, but you know, when Univision asked him if he thought everybody should be a vegan, you know, he said something of akin to uh, no. And let me translate that into Spanish. No. Uh, <laughs> you know, he got, he got a big laugh from it. And it was it was a great moment for him, probably on the fly. But uh, yeah, I mean, those were those were sort of the two or three of the moments that, that really stood out to me. Or they've been thinking about that for months. Maybe there needs to be like a job of like political joke writers or something. I think I could do that. I watched <laughs> a lot of Veep before. So I think I'm ready to go. We can swear, right? I don't know. Anyways. <laughs> All right. So I looked up some uh, charts from uh, 558.com. And I'm going to throw some, some of these findings at you to get, kind of get your uh, thoughts on them. I'm not sure if you looked at them. 
or not. Maybe it's better if not, because it's kind of just hits you and gets your first impression. So All the right. first one Hit me with it. Okay, so we were talking about the Trump mentions and the difference between the different candidates in here. You're talking about Kamala Harris. She had 11 during the debate. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side, Joe Biden and Mayor Pete and uh, Elizabeth Warren all only had one. And Amy Klobuchar didn't even mention them at all. So that is really interesting that there's just... Uh, yeah, just well, a- I mean, it goes it goes back. I mean, we're talking about debate strategies. I mean, Kamala mm-hmm. Harris, the strategy was to take it to Trump, uh, the whole debate. She started off the beginning, I thought, with a a great dialogue directed right at him. Uh, Mr. President, if you're listening, and everybody in that arena and, and watching her uh, at home imagined Donald Trump with his cheeseburgers in his bed, you know, watching the debate and listening to what Kamala Harris was was saying to him. I thought it was a very good opener, but that, mm-hmm. that was, you know, I thought it was a strong performance from her, especially, you know, coming coming after uh, the last debate where, you know, she kind of... Uh, uh, was playing defense a lot of the night and uh, went after Biden with not uh, a lot of success. So yeah, I think that plays into plays into her strategy. I, you know, uh, Amy Klobuchar's really still trying to you know, introduce herself to a lot of people, so clearly didn't didn't talk about Trump a lot. All right, next one is we're talking about just general impressions, and right in here in terms of they're looking at net favorability before and after the debate. The top two, the number one uh, person that, I guess, gained the most ground is Beto O'Rourke, who saw a plus 8.6 positive change. And next up after that is Warren, Elizabeth Warren, Warren, with uh, plus 7.5%. And then this is interesting, kind of illustrating your point about Senator Klobuchar. She's three, even though her numbers are really small. But that I think that might have been like people are like, Who's this? Oh, she seems okay. Mm-hmm. And the person that actually lost ground uh, was uh, Julian Castro, who saw a negative 6.7 change in the negative. So kind of reflects what you're kind of talking about. Yeah. And, but we haven't talked about uh, uh, Congressman O'Rourke. Do you have any thoughts about how he did? Yeah, I, th- I thought Beto had one of his, I mean, he had the best moment in any of these debates for him thus far uh, mm. uh, on guns. He had a very, you know, personal experience in El Paso. You saw right. a lot of, a lot of the other candidates gave him credit on that early on. You know, m- and many of them share similar positions. I don't think, you know, as many are talking about taking away the, taking away guns or assault weapons. O- O'Rourke came out very strongly for that and I think was rewarded for it in this debate. You know, Beto, a lot of people thought out of the gate that he was, you know, going to do what he did in the Senate campaign. And and that just hasn't worked out this way. And in large part because Mayor Pete was uh, in this meteoric rise, uh, right? Right right as as Beto was getting in there. And and Beto had some unforced errors when he got in, you know, sort of a bizarre announcement video with a, you know, his his wife sitting silently staring at him beside him and <laughs> and the Vanity Fair cover talking about how he's born to born to be in it. Uh, I mean, he just had some missteps. So you know, this is he tried to reboot his campaign. I thought that was uh, the best, like I said, the best moment that he's had in in these debates so far. Ben, if you had a guess of who spoke the most words at the debate, who would it be? Biden. Oh, you won. Three thousand three hundred and sixty-three words. Diamond, uh, Diamond Joe Biden comes <laughs> up in first place. And who do you think spoke the least amount? The least amount. Yes. Um, maybe Amy Klobuchar. Incorrect. It's Andrew Yang. Ah, with only about fifteen hundred, so less than half as much as Joe Biden. Is that some? Is that something where, as an inexperienced debater? You might just cede too much of the floor to somebody else, like Diamond Joe. Yeah, I mean, you know, more time means more opportunities to connect with voters. And uh, Joe Biden, uh, he's a master storyteller, and yeah. and he got in there. I thought Elizabeth Warren did a very great job in terms of getting her time as well. Uh, you know, I, I, it is no shock, I think, to anybody watching why she's surging. I mean, she's doing a very, very good job 
communicating her values, communicating her positions. Uh, you know, she was very impressive. I, 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 you know, how, wh- where was she? Was she two or three? Let's see. Where was she? She was three. Right behind Cory Booker. Got it. Yeah. And I thought Booker did a great job of getting in there, too. And it, that's um, so looking at this other chart where they are kind of documenting who's gaining the most potential supporters, it kind of really kind of bears out what you're saying, where like by amongst the front runners, you know, Biden and Sanders kind of held, they kind of lost a little ground, but Elizabeth Warren uh, surged about 4%. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those things where, you know, she's very into like, I have a plan for that. And sometimes it's really nice to hear a plan once in a while. Yeah. Yes, we plan. And our next debate is in uh, October in Ohio. Do you know where it's going to be in Ohio? I don't. I don't. I do know, though, uh, that I think Tom Steyer is going to be in that debate. Uh, oh, really? Which, which should shake things up a bit. I'm, I, I, I think so. I think I read that somewhere. Uh, but he's not one to shy away from from a conflict. And, and he will definitely put impeachment at the center of that stage, which wasn't ever mentioned uh, in the last debate. So having him on stage sort of, sort of shaking things up will be, will be interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he hasn't been able to make these debates yet. I mean, the, like the, the polling thresholds are, you know, difficult to meet for these, for these candidates, I, I, you know, and uh, the donor thresholds are important, but Steyer has been spending a lot of money, a lot of money in, in order to get in. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we, we should see that in Ohio, but you know, back to my point, they're debating in Ohio. I would hope that they all all of the Democrats on the stage really focus in on issues that affect working families and talking to working families directly. Uh, I think that's going to be very important. You know, in the debate in Michigan, they didn't really do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few moments last night, but I, I just think it's a very big missed opportunity for Democrats. If we're not talking to working families, we're not talking to labor. Uh, it's important that we get in there and do that. And we're back. All right, Ben. We just kind of wanted to take a, a couple minutes to talk about general communication strategy, whatever that means. Because um, I'm just <laughs> like before, I'm Johnny Lunchpail, and I now I'm starting to realize I'm just a pawn in your game. It's <laughs> go around and say we need we really need to speak to. I guess I'm an urban voter, so you don't need to worry about me at all. But uh, so, how do you define communication strategy? Well, it's it's really just it's about telling a story. It's a what, when, where you need to communicate, especially in political campaigns. You know, a lot of people just think of it as sort of sloganeering, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, people don't vote on a slogan. They they do vote on a on a story. And so, you're building a communication strategy. You have to, you know, everything you do has to fit into that narrative that you're building. Uh, you have to give voters a construct with which they process all the information that comes at them over the course of, you know, a period of time. You know, who are you? Why are you running? Why do you believe what you believe? Why does that make you the best person to solve these problems? I mean, those are some of the basic foundational questions for candidates. As you get past that foundation, there's messages that you need to communicate that need to be sequenced over time. So, you know, with any good book, you know, if you think about sort of your strategy as, you know, as almost as a, as a novel in telling your story, you know, Building an narrative starts off with the exposition, bringing out the characters, defining them, defining the threat of the problem, developing the characters, defining how you're going to resolve the problems. I mean, those are those are things that people people understand. They get that, and so setting the framework is essential for a winning campaign. And you know, an example is you look at the Trump and Clinton campaign back in in sixteen. You know, like it or not, Trump had a very powerful narrative that a lot of voters in the right states bought into. And, and it was basically, you know, Trump the hero businessman who's gonna save America from the great threat, which he defined as uh, immigrants taking American jobs, rising crime, saving white men from political correctness. And his simplistic resolution to that problem was building a wall and being tough on immigrants. And in his story, 
the villains were Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. He was the he was the big hero. And that is essentially still the framework he's operating on today. Right. I'd imagine that would change somewhat, but not a whole lot. I mean, that that is him. That's the story. When you see something that he's talking about, it it fits into that framework uh, and you understand it in that framework. You know, and in 16, on the other side, Hillary didn't really have a developed narrative like that. It was more of a collection of policies, slogans, you know, impressions of her over a much longer period of time. Voters generally knew what she stood for, uh, but she lacked the kind of narrative structure that Trump was telling. And I think that in some of those key states that she lost in the Rust Belt, Florida, I think that really, really hurt her. You know, but each candidate on the Democratic side are going to need to develop their own framework to combat Trump's this time. You know, uh, take a look at you know Bernie's basic narrative. He's it's been consistent probably from the moment he was born. Uh, you know, Bern, Bern, and, and, and his his sort of narrative is you know, tell me if this sounds familiar. Bernie, the independent crusader, working to protect everyday Americans against a system that's been rigged by the billionaires and the well connected uh, to benefit them at the expense of everybody else. And his solution. Uh, is to put power back in the hands of people, Medicare for all, college for all, Green New Deal. Uh, and in his story, he puts the hero as the people. Uh, the everyday citizens are the hero against the villains of of Trump and the, and the billionaires in his in his narrative. Does that sound familiar? Uh, just a little bit. And, but, a little but, less hateful, but they kind of <laughs> hate some similar people. <laughs> You're right. But the problem with him now is that that narrative was new and fresh in and you know, his, his core is sort of still with him, but I think people like Elizabeth Warren have breathed new life into that message framework with great success and, and built onto it with sort of her own platform and ideas, you know, but that's, that's a reason uh, why I think she's got a lot of momentum. People really do like that, that message, uh, that narrative. And Elizabeth Warren is telling it in a very compelling way right now. And, you know, doing new things to, to, to give it some new life. And so what are some of the tools that you use as a, since you're a political hack when you're just uh, <laughs> deploying this strategy? Yeah. Well, um, there's things that probably everybody's familiar with, uh, what we call earned media, where you're talking in newspapers or cable news, local news. Uh, and you know, it, and then there's paid, paid advertising, uh, digital ads, social media, television ads, radio, mm -hmm. guerrilla media, you know, uh, advertising today and media consumption in general, is very fractured. Uh, you know, it's not like the 1950s where there's three channels. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have to reach voters where they are. And that means on their phone, in their car, on a tablet, watching TV at home, you know, lots of different ways to reach voters. And you have to find the right mix uh, within those mediums, depending on your target audience and your budget. And so how much has uh, social media really changed political campaigns? A lot. I mean, it's at the most fundamental level, social media has completely changed campaigns in terms of organizing, uh, on the ground, persuading. I mean, it's it's a it's an incredible change that it has brought. Do, and you've been doing this for uh, for a little bit. Do you were you there when you noticed like the momentum totally changed? Well, yeah. I mean, you look at you look at 2004, you know, Howard Dean had a had a blog and that was considered like, you know, <laughs> crazy innovative. You know, oh, my God, Howard Dean has a blog. I mean, nowadays it's like a blog. Seriously. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a mail account and everyone's like, whatever, nerd, get out of here. <laughs> uh, I hear AOL accounts are coming back <laughs> in, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're you can you can break out your you know rock and dude eighty five at aol dot com account. Bob. Yeah. <laughs> oh uh, man. Yeah, but you know it it's ch it's changed considerably. I mean, back then, um, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. No, I mean, none of that stuff was around in even two thousand and four. So it's 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 changed dramatically. Did it really? I think it was a pivotal moment the two thousand eight Obama campaign. With all oh, the for, grassroots uh, donations and stuff like that. Oh, for sure, and and that started in in two thousand four, then it grew, you know grew into a juggernaut in 08. and now it's I mean it's even, it's it it's gigantic now. 
you know, absolutely gigantic. And so everyone, so every candidate now has to have at least a Twitter account, right? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Pinterest, I think maybe. Uh, I, I don't know. About, yeah, I don't, I don't know. About, I mean, it depends on the candidate, yeah. depends on the campaign. You know, read a, a great quote yesterday. 22% of America is on Twitter and 0% of those are undecided voters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true to a, you know, yeah. a large degree. I mean, it's very different when you look at other platforms like Facebook. But, you know, I've, look, I've seen ca- campaigns with zero social media win and lose. I've seen mm-hmm. campaigns with huge social media win and lose. I think it depends a lot on the candidate, the the office they're seeking, you know, social media in general it is a tactic that has to be a part of your broader communication strategy. It's got to help you tell your story. It's got to help you build your narrative in important ways uh, that distinguish you from your opponents. Uh, and it's got to, you know, it's got the ability to give a glimpse of you unfiltered. You know, that's really important. But it, I, I think I'm hearing what you're saying. Like it can't be your only way because if everything's so fractured, you might really, uh, miss connecting to the people you really need to convince to vote for you and just keep twi- uh, twittering to the same people that you already have on your side. Yeah, I mean, it, de- it depends, right? If this is a small race that mm-hmm. you can run a digital social only campaign, uh, there's a lot of campaigns like that, you know, depending on who you need to reach. You know, if you need to reach old white guys that live in rural areas, you might run a radio only campaign, you know. But generally, you've got to have your communications layered. But, you know, that's it's all, you know, driven driven in part by your budget. A, a governor's race has a different budget than a state rep race. A big city mayor race has a different, you know, budget than, you know, a congressional race. And presidentials have different budgets than than U.S. Senate campaigns. I mean, they're all they're all different. You have to figure out, you know. Who's the most important voters that you need to reach, and 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 how do you best communicate your story to them across the variety of channels that you need to utilize? Because you know, just communicating on television uh, is not—you you can't only do that um, anymore on larger races. You have to have a layered layered campaign. Right. No one watches uh, television. Not not young people. Not that they vote anyways. But okay. So, out of the candidates, who do you think is the savviest user of social media? Who do you think, Bob? Well, I guess I only follow like a couple people. Andrew Yang does a pretty good job because if you think about it, like you're talking about, it's like almost like a window into more of his personality mm-hmm. out of anything. You know, he goes in and he, he tweets about the NBA and says as an NBA fan, I'm like, oh, that's that's interesting. That's funny. He he tries to display his his humor about stuff. You know, he's twittering around about Game of Thrones and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's, so I think that's when and being relatable that is I think is probably helps them a lot and mm-hmm. makes them more interesting than just like, I don't know, someone be like, oh, here's another policy idea I have, you know, yeah. like, oh, you know, I, I don't really care. <laughs> but, you know, like, but really, um, I think that's that's the one. And also, I think uh, when we talk about uh, uh, Mayor Buttigieg, Boot, Boot Edge Edge, right? Yeah, that's it. You know what? It's funny. I saw a video of him, and he must have been at one of his campaign offices. And on the back wall, it said "Boot Edge Edge." <laughs> that was pretty funny. Yeah, they got T-shirts on that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's another one that did a really great job because it's not only him, but it was like a full court press because his dogs have Twitter, and his husband is also pretty charming in his own right. So it like kind of hits you from all sides. Yeah. You know? Totally. And it, yeah. I mean, and back to Yang, I mean, this guy came out of nowhere. Yeah. He's now on the presidential debate stage and raising money. That's and pretty that, impressive. And, and that's better than some governors are doing. Look at, look at Steve Bullock uh, or governors that are already dropped out like Hickenlooper or Inslee. I mean, I think that's impressive, but I will say to me, the savviest user of social media, hands down is Elizabeth Warren. And I'll tell you why. One word. Selfies. Uh, Last night alone at her New York rally, she spent four hours afterwards taking selfies with anybody that wanted one. And she does this for every event. They reported it was like 60,000 selfies or something like that uh, that she's taken just at these events. Uh, But the voters that get a selfie post that 
photo to their Facebook, to their Instagram, Twitter, Snap, you name it. Uh, you know, and they've just delivered a very powerful endorsement to their friends and all their online acquaintances that this is a really cool thing that I got to do and I like her. Uh, and those sort of third party validators are, are key for campaigns, especially in primaries. And the Warren team fundamentally gets that and has embraced it in a way that other campaigns just have not. And to add it, I think she's doing all the traditional online social media tactics very, very well, too. Yeah. So I, to me, hands down. Elizabeth Warren, she gets she gets my award for savviest media social media user. Yeah, that's a really good um, point because uh, I didn't realize it until you started talking about that that a friend of mine, Sam, who might actually end up on here, he he had a selfie with Elizabeth Warren, and it's his, and he shared it to everybody, and it's his profile picture. Well, there so, you go. Sam you know, just gave Sam just gave her an important, you know, endorsement. At least, uh, you know, if it's not a, I'm supporting this person. It's a, hey, look at the cool thing and the cool person I got to meet. You know, and, and you know, that might cause other people to Google her or want to learn more about her or listen the next time they see her. Oh yeah, right. Sam. Sam met that person. Yep, probably 15, 30 seconds of time that she spent just uh, makes somebody that much of a diehard supporter of hers. Because they're giving that time, or she's giving that time to them. Mm-hmm. But yeah. well, interesting. I might have to change my vote to Warren too. You convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What? I, this is a really big question, so I don't need you to go off for two hours on into the weeds on this. But let's just narrow it down to one thing. What's one thing that these campaigns need to do to win the nomination? Just uh, just the nomination for uh, president. Oh, just the just the nomination for president. Just not the one not thing. the big big enchilada. <laughs> just just the quesadilla. <laughs> Got it. All right. Well, I mean, organizing is critical in the early states. You know that that is absolutely critical on the ground. Uh, but I would also say I'm going to give you two here. Okay. Uh, we've been talking a lot about narrative development, and, and that's key. I mean, these candidates have to say things the other candidates can't say. You know, because if they're all just talking about the same policy, mm-hmm. you know, the person that says it loudest essentially wins, right? All the Democrats are for better health care, for ending gun violence, for ending, you know, fear, hate, and the corruption of the Trump administration. But how do they convey those positions through a unique personal story that fit the narrative that, that they're developing? And so, you know, if they're going to get a lot of these, you know, very studious primary voters and caucus goers in these early states, they've got to, they've got to connect on an emotional level. I mean, one example of, of somebody that, that has, is trying to break through with that is, is Cory Booker tells a very powerful story of when he was a kid and his parents wanted to move into a neighborhood uh, in a good school district, but nobody would sell his family a home there because of the color of their skin. Uh, but a group of volunteers had stepped in to help his family eventually got the home. Uh, but that's a story that's unique only to him. And there's a direct line between that story and why he believes what he believes now and why he will work to improve that situation, those opportunities for everybody in the future. And so it's that sort of personal narrative connected to your sort of overall strategic narrative that these candidates have to develop more of, you know, those sort of stories. That's how people, you know, are going to come to know them better and, and trust them uh, and, and see their real character. So yeah, if, if there's two things that the candidates need to focus on I, uh, in in winning the nominee, I'd say it's organizing and it's also about building their personal narrative. Do you think it's easier to be the front runner or behind in the polls at this time? Hmm. It's that's such a, good... a long it's such a long contest, right? Yeah, no, that's good. And look, being a front runner at this point, you've got a massive target on your back. Yeah, uh, poor Joe Biden, right? Like, yeah, or, everyone's or even just, if, yeah, yeah, they're lining and, up. And even if you're in the poll position, you know, in a crowd of primary like this, look at what happened to Kamala Harris in, in the in the second debate. You know, there's a big difference in the in the approach of campaigns, you know, whether you're a front runner or you're in the back of the pack, how you spend your resources, the sort of the risks you take in messaging. It's it's tough to say. I mean, you know, you almost always want to be in the front, but you don't want to be too far ahead. Right. Uh, timing's everything on these campaigns. And um uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I've been on campaigns running from way behind that peaked at the right moment. I've been on, you know, front runner campaigns where the 
you know, the back runners, so to speak, never caught up. So yeah, I mean, caucuses are in primaries are st- early primaries are still a ways away. I think they'll break very late. Uh, and you know, you've even got candidates dropping out that'll have, have a big, big impact. Do you approach things differently if you're the front runner? You probably obviously do, but how do you approach things differently if you're the front runner or you're just sort of nipping at the heels? Right. Well, I mean, look at look at Biden. I mean, he needed to come out in this debate uh, forcefully. Uh, he needed to show that he could he could hang it in there with everybody and and go toe to toe with not just the Democrats, but you know, showing in a responsive core way that you know he can he can go up against Donald Trump. Uh, you know, he needed to establish some of his key messages. He got more time to do so, more deference. I mean, he's or the the statesman of the group, you know, talking about electability, you know, was a key key point that he had to bring up his relationship and and relationship friendship and work with uh, President Barack Obama was important, and he was able to you know effectively play defense on Julian Castro's attacks. You know, let's just flip the coin now. You're Castro. He thought that he needed to go after Biden to, you know, get more get more airtime, make make a bigger. Uh, make a bigger play, get more attention. And it ended up backfiring on him pretty spectacularly. I don't know if he meant to go after Biden uh, on his age or making it sort of an age-based attack. Uh, I would hope not. Uh, but, you know, he's been he's been playing catch-up all week for that. But part of, you know, to your, to your question, how do you approach things, part of his calculation was he's got to take more risks. He's at the back yeah. of the pack. He's got to try to figure out how to break out. I think he just miscalculated on on how he was going to do that. It didn't bother to to look at the the results from Kamala Harris in debate two, the previous debate, which had the same effect. So yeah, I mean, there is a different approach, uh, not just in debates, but and communication, but in you know, how you spend your resources, what you're what you're looking at. Um, it's a it's a different strategy. And so as we go through the next month or so. Is there anything that we need to look out for? Any sort of uh, inside baseball you can share with us? Inside baseball, man. Uh, I don't have anything that comes off the top of my head. Well, that's a dud. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> oh no, but uh, but I think that's that's uh, we're at the end of all my questions, and I really appreciate you for your time, Ben. Do you have any last thoughts? Any anything that? you kind of want to go out on no thanks for having me on though i i, I appreciate the time and uh it was, it was good catching up ben thanks thanks a lot for being on uh blue island red sea is produced and edited by bob serrano you can follow me on twitter at bob serrano five i have six twitter followers so i am very popular i'm a influencer you can email me at aging hipster network at gmail.com you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, some other places. I'm trying to get them up on everywhere you can find them. And please rate and leave kind reviews. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great night.